So it's fun to be with you this morning. As Seth mentioned, I, I get to serve at a local church uh, here. Uh, the name that, that we kind of go by is Willamette Christian Church out in West Lynn. Uh, but one of the kind of weird things about us is we have three campuses. Uh, so maybe if you're more familiar with Milwaukee area, there's uh, Hope City there. That's where Seth and I did a ton of ministry together. And then Beaverton Christian Church out in Beaverton um, is also a part of our a little church family there. And so oftentimes, uh, because I live in Tualatin, I'll, when people go like, what church do you work at? I always just look at them and go, where do you live? Uh, because I want to know where they live so that I can say the church closest to their house so that maybe I'll see them there. And so part of my role is to get to kind of bounce around uh, between our campuses, working on our central team. And so uh, it's such a joy to be here. Uh, John uh, Rosenstiel and I have gotten to know each other and um, hang out and do some ministry in different contexts together and, and pray with the staff. We did Good Friday uh, together. If you uh, came out to Willamette for Good Friday with us, then you know that we kind of partnered together. And that was so much fun to work with uh, Jess and Hannah through that. And so it's just fun to be with you uh, this morning as we get to kind of continue in a series you've been in around the greatest hits. And so uh, I'm, I'm stoked to jump into this. I mean, when John called and said, hey, dude, here's our series. We're doing greatest hits. Um, pick some passages that you like to teach on and that are the greatest hits of the Bible. I was like, that's the easiest invite ever. Uh, and so what we're going to do a little bit this morning is sort of look at two because I couldn't pick uh, between these two. And then I went, wait a minute. There's actually a story in the book of Luke that puts two of the, my favorite passages, my favorite greatest hits together. And so we're going to look at both of these. But before we jump into that, you know, when I think about greatest greatest hits and the greats, right? The goats of the world. My mind almost immediately goes to sports because that's where we really talk about the greatest things. And so maybe you're a basketball fan. And so you go to basketball and you're like, who is the goat? And you're like, it's LeBron James. The debate is over, right? Because I followed him to team, to team, to team, to team as he chases championship rings. And so he's the greatest of all time. Or maybe you're like, no, 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 man, it's Michael Jordan. He was with one team. He redefined basketball. That's what it is. Or maybe you're even more old school and you're like, it's Wilt. Like Chamberlain, Wilt Chamberlain is the guy. Like he's the one that's the greatest of all time. Maybe basketball is not your thing. You're more of a football person. Okay. Okay, how about the greatest quarterback of all time, right? Maybe you, again, you go Johnny Unitas, right? And you can remember like just his glory on the field. Maybe you're a little bit more new school and you're like, no, it's Joe Montana. As a diehard Dallas Cowboys fan, I will never, ever claim that he is the greatest at anything ever, right? I just can't, I just can't do that ever. Like I, when I was thinking about this, I wanted to be like the greatest quarterback of all time. Well, that's um, Troy Aikman and that's Tony Romo and that's Dak Prescott. Like I don't even, the debates over me. Let's be honest, it's Tom Brady. Like, rings matter, and the guy's 45 and still doing it. And as much as I don't want to root for the guy, I can't help it. But, but maybe those aren't your thing. Maybe you're into a real sport like wrestling. And so you go, okay, this is who I know is the greatest of all time. It is Ric Flair, who, by the way, apparently had his last match last week. It's been a minute since I followed wrestling, but even I saw that one, and he won. And so I was like, I don't even know how old he is, but he's still out there going, woo! right? Just totally getting into it. Maybe you're like, no, it's the undertaker. Like I can't, I, his eyes and those contacts, or maybe you're like, it's macho man, Randy Savage. Not only does he sell a great piece of beef jerky, but he's also a great wrestler, right? And so the, like, this is where my mind goes, but I have a lovely wife who was like, those are really catered to you. And because I love my wife and she's an amazing mom to our six kids, that got me thinking, well, who are the greatest TV moms of all time? And so I Googled it. Here's, the, here's number three. 
Here's number three, Lorelai Gilmore. Some of you remember her, right? Single mom raising Rory in that little town, right? And I go, yeah, that makes sense. If you are a single parent, you know how hard that is. And so she immediately gets put on the list as one of the greatest TV moms of all time. Uh, then number two on the list was Claire Huxtable. Which, man, her wit and her humor, like I grew up watching this and now as like history has shown, Claire was putting up some stuff with her husband that we like, we're like, man, she put her higher up on that list. Like, like she's amazing, right? Or, or make, wait, wait, don't go to the slide yet. Who do you think is the greatest, was rated the greatest TV mom of all time? Any guesses? I heard it, Carol Brady. Carol Brady, right? She is the greatest TV mom of all time, according to the Google machine. And so she's out there, which again, I'm looking at her and I'm like, gosh, a blended family. If you've ever had to blend a two families together, that is difficult and hard. And so she was rated as the greatest TV mom of all time. Now you may look at those greats and you go, man, I don't know that I agree with all those and I want to debate you on some of those. And, and whether it's sports or television or whether it's the greatest mascot or the greatest team or the greatest like band of all time, we all have this thing that we do where we create our idea of what the greatest thing is and then we like to discuss it or debate it with one another. The issue when we're debating though the greatest things of all time is what we're really debating is my opinion on those things. It's why I'm like Joe Montana cannot be on that list because my bias and my opinion changes that. In fact, I create the criteria that sort of skews the data towards what I want to be the greatest. This played out in my life when I was having a conversation with a friend around who was the greatest band of all time. And so we said, let's set the criteria down. And so we began to kind of put together the criteria that we were going to have. And we said, okay, they, to, to be the greatest band of all time, they need to have like the original members of it. They can't break up and they need to have the original members. Uh, they need to have spanned multiple generations. In fact, there can't just be one sort of generation that loves them. They need to have crossed generational boundaries. Uh, let's see, they need to have not only the multiple generations, but they need to like cross cultures, if they're just sort of in one part of the world or one culture that likes them, no, let, let's, they've got to have this worldwide influence there. And then, you know what, to be the greatest band of all time, let's say that they have to go beyond music. What they have do has to transcend music a little bit. And so we started to make our list and immediately my friend goes, oh, well, based on our criteria, that's really, really easy. The greatest band of all time is Metallica. <laughs> to which I was like, I didn't know I needed to put on the list that they made good music too. Right? And my friend looked at me like, dude, those are fighting words. Those, those are fighting words. Like, what are you doing? Because he was like, dude, they hit all of our criteria. Like, they, they land on all of that. And I was like, you know what? There's one more criteria that we forgot to put on that list, and that's that the band has to be from Dublin, Ireland. Right, because U2 is the greatest band of all time. Like, like, there's no debate around this, and they hit all that criteria. They've even, they're even in a kid's movie, Sing 2, anybody, right? Like, they have crossed generations. They just introduced a whole new generation. And my friend looked at me, and they were like, well, that's a convenient criteria. Right, because well, what I did was all of a sudden I was like, wait, we're not getting the outcome that I have predetermined should be the right outcome. So how do I change things so that I can do it? In other words, how do I find a loophole? How do I go, hey, I know we're going to talk about this, but I want this to be the outcome. So what's the loophole? How do I shift the conversation, skew the conversation, get a, my bias in there so much so that we hit a predetermined outcome that I already want? You see, I know that I do this in my life when it comes to bands and to mascots and to music and to television moms. 
But oftentimes I also do it when it comes to scripture and to the things of God. That I have a predetermined outcome that I already want. And so I go and I read scripture in order to give me that outcome. The issue with that is scripture doesn't let us do that. It doesn't let us, especially when it comes to the greatest. There are three things that the Bible calls the greatest. We have the great commandment, the great commission, and the great collaboration. Now, we're not going to look at all three of those this morning. What we're going to focus on today is the great commandment. We're going to look at the great commandment. And the thing is, when there's a thing called the great commandment, when God comes out and says something is the greatest, there's no more debate. Like, like when the creator of all things, the one who is both inside and outside of time, the one being that was not created, that has always been, says this is the greatest, their criteria is what sets the trajectory for everything else. And so God has given us what is called the great commandment. And to do that, what we have to do is go look back in the book of Deuteronomy. We have to look in the book of Deuteronomy in the, what is called the Old Testament. And the book of Deuteronomy is the, the book of law. It was written by a guy named Moses. You might know it as the, the book of, or the law of Moses that is there. You can sort of think of it as like the legislative branch, branch of Israel's nation. That is, they were forming as a nation. They had Deuteronomy written. And it was like, here's, here's the laws. Like, here's the things that we should follow. And there were certain parts of it that every single morning, the good Jewish men and women would get up, would, st- would wake up, and they had sort of a, a mantra, a, a saying, a meditation that they would say. And one of those meditations is found in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. And, and here's what it says. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now, there's a a lot to unpack here. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time in here before we jump in to our story in Luke. But what you can see here is that very first word is the word here. The word here is actually the word Shema. And so the ancient Israelites, when they would begin to recite this, they simply began to call this the Shema. Because that's the first word. You see, they didn't call it Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. You and I, we added that later so that we could go back and look at it. They would just say Shema. And as a culture, everyone would know what they were talking about. A little bit like today, if I say, we the people. We all know that there's, oh, that's the beginning of the Constitution. And so there's something that comes out. Or if I go, I pledge allegiance to, you can all, because if you grew up in America in school that was indoctrinating us for Americanism, right? Like, like you can all say the Pledge of Allegiance. And so they would just start it with Shema, this word here. Now, the thing about the word here is it carries with it what every parent wants for their kids. This idea of not just hearing something, but listening, right? Hearing and obeying putting it into action, that you would hear, oh, Israel. As I mentioned earlier, we've got a a, a slew of kids at our house. And so, you know, if I'm sitting there with my kiddos and all of a sudden they they come and I'm like, hey, I need you to go pick up your room. And they're like, okay, dad. And then they're still standing there a little bit later. I'm like, hey, did you hear me? And they're like, yeah, dad, I heard you. And I'm like, then why are you still standing here? Right? Because I want them to hear and to listen and obey. Uh, my son uh, was playing baseball, and I've had the, the opportunity to coach his team for the past couple of years. And when he was seven years old, we, uh, were, I was coaching his Little League baseball team, uh, whose name was the Tiger Pickles, by the way. Fantastic name for a baseball team. It's what happens when you let seven and eight-year-olds pick the team, and half of them want to be the Tigers, and half of them want to be the Pickles. We go, you're going to be the Tiger Pickles, because we're trying to teach you to compromise and reach across the aisle and do things that Congress can't do. And so like this is the, we became the, the, the Tiger Pickles in that moment. It was so much fun. We had a great season. And before 
before the season started, there was a moment where we were in kind of doing a little scrimmage. One of the kids comes up to bat and he hits the ball and he runs down to first base carrying the bat in his hand. And every single one of his coaches was like, drop the bat, drop the bat, drop the bat. And of course he gets to first base, stands on it and drops the bat. Right. And so then he comes up to bat a little bit later and I'm like, hey, here's what I need you to do this time. As soon as you hit the ball, drop the bat and run to first base. You got me. And he's like, drop the bat, run to first. I was like, cool. He gets a hit and you already know what happens. He runs to first base with the bat in his hand the entire time, gets to first base and drops the bat. And I'm like, oh, it's going to be a long season. This is right. Right. Because at that age, like they're going, man, this. he heard me. He repeated back exactly. He'd memorized it. He probably studied it in Greek, but, but he had figured it all out. But yet he wasn't putting it into action yet. Here carries all of that in it. To shema something, if I can use it in that form, is to hear it and to put it into action. So what are we to put into action? Well, what we're supposed to do is love the Lord our God. Now, this idea of loving, there's so much more than just emotion here. It's more than just how we feel about something. It's, it's a deep commitment. It's, it's a loving God with everything, everything, all of who we are, which means if I disagree with God on something, I'm the one that needs to go, God, I love you enough that I will submit to you and follow through on that because you loved me enough to send your son to die for me and rise again. And so I will offer my life as a living sacrifice to you. If you're married in the room in a covenant relationship, then you understand this. That my wife and I have been together for 14 years and, and we've had some great highs and some good, good lows in that. And you know what? There's an undercurrent of love that we have that say it's not reactionary. It doesn't rise and fall based on my affection in the moment. No, no, no. I love my wife. And so I'm going to love her through the thick and the thin, the good and the bad. It's putting it into action. And I'm supposed to do this with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength. You see, the heart idea here in this one is that you would love God with your thinking. For the ancient Israelite, they didn't sort of separate the mind and the heart. They put them together. In fact, there was even uh, one scholar I read that said the way that they would have translated it would be that it is the heart is the throne of the mind, which we kind of have in our culture when we say, like, follow your heart. What we mean is like, hey, you're going to think through it, but at the end of the day, kind of follow your heart. And so to this heart idea of loving God with your heart is going, hey, think about it. It is okay to be intellectual and to, to reason and to use wisdom through what you're doing. Follow God with that. And then the next word there is soul. Soul, this isn't just a piece of you. This, for the ancient understanding, would be all of you. You see, most of us in this room, we come from sort of a, a Hellenistic, Greco-Roman idea of thinking, very Western, black and white. But an ancient Israelite came from an Eastern way of thinking. And so they didn't compartmentalize their life in different, different things to to go like, yeah, I'm going to love God with all of my mind, but I'm going to hold back my, my physical body or I'm going to hold back my emotions. And so the fact that it says love with your soul, it's going, man, this is all of who you are. Would you just love God with all of you? And then it says strength. Now, this is the most complicated one for us to understand. I'm proud to say that I've been working out again um, and for the first time, and I'm, I'm hoping that it kind of sticks this time. So for the past four weeks, I've been getting a workout in, and my wife and I are doing the whole like measurement thing, right? Because all of a sudden I was like, babe, that scale is not moving. And she was like, but the inches are, you're doing good, right? And so I'm, I'm gaining muscle, and that, that's not what this is talking about. Yes, there's a physical aspect to it. But to love God with all of your strength, 
Actually, it means to love God with all of you, with this veriness, with a, a one translation I read said, to love God with your muchness. It's this idea of, of all of who you are, devo- devo- devoting every possible opportunity, situation, capacity that you can think of and that you can't think of putting all of you to God. So the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To listen to God, to be in a relationship with him, that all of your life would be geared towards God. Therefore, what God says you're to do, you should put those things into action. And it's that understanding of Deuteronomy that is going to then help us understand what Jesus teaches in the book of Luke. And so, uh, Anna, why don't you come for us and read this passage in Luke this morning? This week's passage is Luke 10, 25 through 37. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, He crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. And the man replied, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. Thank you. So this is the story in the book of Luke. Where we see this mantra, this Shema from Deuteronomy. All of a sudden go, okay, great. I've I've learned that. But how do I put it into action? And, And that's what this expert in religious law is trying to figure out. This expert in religious law is going, I I know the Shema. But, but Jesus, how do I put it into action? Now, when it says expert in religious law, don't think this in, in a legal governmental sense. This individual would have been an expert in the Mosaic law, the Deuteronomic law, that Deuteronomy, that entire book, he would have known it. But it wasn't just his job to know it and to memorize it. And more importantly, what he would have been in charge of doing is learning it, studying it, memorizing it, and interpreting it for the people. 
And so you can think of him a little bit more like the judicial branch of our government. He probably sat on the Supreme Court, uh, this high job where they're going, hey, we have this, but how do, how do we play this out? How do we interpret it? And he shows up wanting to expose Jesus for Jesus's bad interpretation of the law of God. And so he comes to test Jesus on this greatest commandment. And he shows up with this question, right? Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? That is a great question. Like, like that, that is a, a, talk about an understated question. That's a big question. Like, Jesus, what do I have to do to live with you forever, to, to experience eternal life with you? And Jesus' response is so great, which we should all learn from. And anytime somebody's trying to trap us or confront us with something and they ask us a question, don't give a response. Respond to the question with a question. That's what Jesus does here. Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Which is so good because he's like, you're the religious expert. What does the law of Moses say? And how do you, what's your interpretation of it? Now, Jesus has already revealed to us how he wants us to live out and care for other people and to, to love God with all that we are. And this person replies, well, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're a savvy reader, you're going to notice that mind is added here, right? It's, it's added to it. That's because that word strength that we looked at earlier is tough to unpack and to Add that to the word heart. Not only that, but it's a Jewish saying that is now in Jesus's time in a Greco-Roman world. So they're taking Jewish thinking and Roman thinking, and they're sort of applying those together and, and playing that out. But then it's also added, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because at this point in history, what's happened is sort of uh, the greatest commandment has become a 1A and 1B, or the 1 and 2, and the second is just like the first. The first being what we studied earlier, loving the Lord your God with everything that you are, and the second, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire Old Testament law can be summed up in these two things. And so what the religious expert knows is, hey, my job is to study this and to interpret it for people. And so what does Moses say? Well, Moses says, I am to love God and I'm to love people. This is the greatest commandment. This is 1A and 1B. This is what it says. And I love Jesus' response in the next verse. He looks at him and goes, right, do this and you will live. Next question, right? right? It's like Jesus is like, cool, dude, you got it. You, you asked a question. I don't, I don't really know why you need me to answer that. You answered it correctly. Love God and love people and you're going to be good. Anybody else want to come at me, bro? Right? I mean, he's like, he's like this, is, this is good. Do this and you will live. But this religious expert won't let him off the, uh, the hook that easy. He, he wants a self-serving clarification. He's like, no, 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 whoa, whoa, hold on, Jesus. Not, not so fast. Here's what it says in verse 29. But the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He goes, whoa, Jesus, not so fast. He wanted to justify his actions. I mean, can you believe the nerve of this guy? Who would ever want to get into an argument in a debate and have a predetermined outcome that they already want the answer to, and when they're not given that answer, go, hold on, hold on, hold on. Can I change the criteria? Where's the loophole? 
Right? That man, it's a good thing my wife is not here this morning. She would be going, that was the argument we had two days ago. <laughs> you were do you wanted to justify your actions, and so you were going out and going, oh, hold on, hold on. Like, can we re- can we define terms of this argument, please? Because you're using this word and I'm using this word, and I do not think that means what you think it means. Right? Like that's that's what he's doing. He wants to justify his actions. He wants to present the conversation in a way that already agrees with him. He doesn't want to let it challenge him in any way. In other words, he sought to limit his responsibility for loving others. As as if he's going, yeah, yeah, the love your God part, I get that. Like Jesus, I'm already doing that. But this second part, this love your neighbor piece that's now tied to the greatest commandment, like like Jesus, could you help clarify who the neighbor is? Because (coughs) I already have an idea of who my neighbor is and I really like loving them and I really don't like loving that person. And so can you justify me and say that this is my neighbor and not them? I don't want to love them with all of my muchness, with all that I am. He believes in God, yes, But he doesn't really want to let God influence the way that he lives his life in all these different ways. In other words, he's trying to let the Bible justify his actions for what he already does rather than let the Bible confront his actions on what God is calling him to do. Maybe familiar with the idea of like the chatterbox mentality or the echo chamber that we live in, right? This is something every single one of us is prone to. That I like to gather people around me and my circles of influence that already agree with me and oftentimes look like me, right? Because I'm comfortable in that and they're not going to challenge me on anything. It's that group thing. It's like, no, hey, we're all in the same boat. Like, let's just move forward here and and do that and keep going. It's why I tend to be drawn to news stations that already agree with my political bent and leaning. And so they're just going to continue to tell me the things that I already know. And I'm like, yes, that's a great talking point. I wish so-and-so was listening to this right now. But they're not listening to it because they're listening to the news station that agrees with them on their thing, right? Or, or take Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, right? I subscribe and I follow people and I watch videos of things that I already like and I'm already interested in. And then because every single one of those platforms are trying to sell ads and make money and not even just ads, they're trying to sell your data, right? Because of that, they're going to go, how long do we keep this person on here? And so they're going to give you more things. The algorithms are set up to give you more of what you already agree with. And now you you feel like, man, there's a whole group of people over here that already agree with me. If everybody else would just come over here and do this. Meanwhile, there's a whole side of the conversation that you're missing out on because you're in that echo chamber. And then I leave that and I go in and I gauge, engage with people at the coffee shop and in my church and on my son's baseball team and parents that was at a, a coaching meeting yesterday for soccer and I'm there engaging with people from the community and all of a sudden I'm like, wait, 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 people think differently than me. Well, how do I come to the scriptures and go, well, yeah, but, but I'm going to read into this what I already agree with. I'm just like this religious expert looking for my loophole. In fact, Eugene Pearson, in his translation of this text for his congregation, translated it this way. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? This individual that had come to Jesus was like, yeah, yeah, I'm good with the greatest commandment loving God part, but now that we've attached loving my neighbor to the greatest commandment as well, I want to justify my own actions. I've got a loophole that I'm going with. I want to change the parameters of my opinion in order to get what I already want. The problem with this, 
The problem is that what we've read this morning is not the great suggestion. It's not the great idea. It's not the great thought exercise. It's the greatest commandment. And God has called it that. God has defined it as the greatest commandment, which means I don't get to just skirt around it. I have to press into it and lean into it a little bit and go, oh my goodness, what's happening here? You see, the part of the story that gets most of the play is that part of the story where you have the the, the parable where the the guy is out walking on a road and he gets robbed, right? And then some some people come and rob him and they beat him up. And then a religious person comes by and, and crosses the road and wants nothing to do with him. And then another religious person comes by and crosses the road and wants nothing to do with him. And then all of a sudden somebody comes by that was culturally different than him and ethnically different than him. And in their culture, they were enemies. And it's that person that comes in and loves them like a true neighbor and please understand me, we need to be doing that. That will preach, but as much as that gets the play in this story, the part of it that I've been convicted on is the motive behind the question to begin with. Where are my loopholes? Because if I don't start with the motive of that question, then I'll just read this story and go, whew, good thing I'm really good at loving my neighbor. Like, good thing, I, I am so good. I, you know what? I coach my kids' teams. I'm in the community. Like, I, my, I know the names of my neighbors. I know their kids' names. I know what's going on around me. Like, I'm so good. I, whew, good thing I'm good at this passage. And I'm falling into the same trap that the religious expert did. But when I go back to the motive of his question, looking for his loophole, trying to justify himself, Then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, no, that's too close to home. I don't know. God, don't make me look at my loopholes. Don't make me look at the places in Scripture where uh, I'm not loving my neighbor well, where I'm not carrying out the greatest commandment well. Don't make me look at that, God. I just want to feel good about this. God, God, I I don't want to pay attention to where you're asking me to love you with all of my muchness. Like, no, no, no. Could I just define neighbor, please? Because I really like these people over here and I'm serving them and I'm doing a great job with this, but oh, those people, no thanks. And God's like, no, you don't get that option. Oh God, God, I I love the way that I love you with with my intellect and my mind. I love the way that I love you with my passion and, and my worship and my emotions and the way I'm trying to lead my family through that. But oh, no, no, God, my finances, like I'd like to not worship you with those. I just want to keep those back. In fact, let me explain to you all of the things that I'm doing with my money that you should be okay with, God, and trying to justify my own actions. You see, I think the motive of this question is where the heart of it comes in. If I'm to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself, then I have to go, man, if the great commandment is to take my entire being and to love God with all that I am, then I let God set the criteria, not my loopholes. I let God be the one that speaks into my life, not when it's just convenient for me, but when God calls me to it. You see, God loved me so much that he gave his son Jesus for me. That Jesus gave up everything. He did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And when I begin to understand what Jesus has done for me, 
Then I begin to live my life as a living sacrifice for him. And so now I look at the great commandment and go, God, in response to who you are, I want to love you with all of my life. And so here is all of my life. And God, would you please expose in me my loopholes? The areas where I am justifying my own actions on what it means to love God and to love people. And Spirit, would you give me the ability to close those loopholes? We'll do that in community where there's people that can come around me and go, Grant, you're saying this, but I see you doing this. That doesn't seem to jive. And I go, man, maybe there's a loophole there that I need to look at. And that I do it by, by being honest with people and, and living an authentic life with them in real mission where they can see what's going on. And I live it by spending time in the word of God and prayer every single day to just sit before God and not tell him everything, but to listen and go, God, help me to stop justifying myself. And so New Hope, that question is really what I'm wrestling with. And as simple as it sounds, that's what I want you to wrestle with this week is where are your loopholes? Where are the areas that you're justifying things rather than going, no, God, I'm submitting this to you. And maybe it's that you're already a follower of Jesus and you, like me, can go, yeah, there's some really big areas that are there. Um, and if you're looking for these, by the way, ask your spouse. They're really good at calling those out and seeing those in some beautiful ways. But, but, but maybe you're like, man, I'm not even so sure about this Jesus character and what's going on. I think I've got life figured out already. I would just encourage you to go, yeah, yeah. Maybe there's some justification there because God is calling you into relationship with him. And as scary as that can sound, I want you to know that you're going to meet nothing but love and grace and mercy and compassion when you come to God and lay down your life. So hear, O new hope, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Would you love the Lord our God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength? No loopholes. Let's pray together. Father, we just come before you this morning, and I thank you for the beauty of, of Deuteronomy, the Shema. God, that you gave us to that so early in the history of revealing yourself. And yet it's taken decades and lifetimes and centuries to live it out. And even now in my own life, God, would you just convict me on where I am still justifying and changing criteria to do what I want to do rather than what you've called me to. And oh God, I thank you for the grace that you treat me with as I grow more and more into your image. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.